Greetings, and welcome to the Net Positive Podcast. I am your host, Ted Flanagan, and this episode of the Net Positive features my long-standing friend, Susan Joy Hassel. We worked together many years ago. Her career has flourished in the field of climate communications. She joins us from Asheville, North Carolina. It's a pleasure to have her on the show. So, Sue, welcome to the Net Positive Podcast. I'm delighted to have you on the show to do an episode with you and to reconnect. Uh, you just showed me a business card of my company that must have been like 1988, maybe, 89, when we worked together in Snowmass, Colorado. And since then, you have, I've been reviewing your website and your TED Talk and your communications, and I'm just blown away by everything you've done. So, so welcome. Thank you. Good to be here with you, Ted. Yeah, and, and congratulations. Uh, You've, you've, you've created a niche in climate communications. When did you first get that direction in your career, in your life, that that was your, going to be your niche? I think I've always had a talent for summarizing and explaining in plain language large amounts of complex information. And, you know, we did that in the work we did together at IRT, you know, writing an energy news brief every week. I would read large amounts of information, boil it down to the most essential things and communicate that in plain language for people who needed to know it. And so I think that's always been my kind of my talent. Everybody's got something they're good at and that seems to be what I'm good at. And it really became clear to me around the time that we were working together 35 years ago or whenever that was, that climate change was going to be the issue of our time. That was was clear to me, all the energy work that we were all doing to me, it seemed like the, the impact of our burning of fossil fuels was going to be the thing that defined our generation and those that came after us. And so I guess, you know, when the nature of like Paul Simon, um, the, the singer songwriter, not the senator said, I just want to say the most important thing there is to say in the most effective way there is to say it. And it just occurred to me that this was the issue I was going to have to work on. And uh, I've been doing it ever since, you know, I work at the Aspen Global Change Institute, listening to hundreds and hundreds of talks by leading scientists, hour long technical talks that I would then summarize in one page in plain language. And somewhere along the line, a bunch of scientists came to me in the 90s and said, hey, we've got to write the first U.S. national climate assessment. And we know the science, but we don't know how to do that. So will you help us? And so I became the writer on the first U.S. national assessment and then the second and then the third. And it really just took off from there. I just um, I loved doing this important policy relevant work. I wish we could have been more effective at, uh, you know, getting people to understand it and the urgency of acting sooner. But, yeah, that's basically why, I guess. Very impressive to me that you've been able to seems like you've been able to stay very fiercely independent. Uh, you're doing your own thing. You're get, you've got some grants, you've got some contracts, you've got some donations, you've got you know, a mix, but you as an individual, as a professional, have been able to just crank and, uh, and be charting your own course this whole way. So kudos to you. Well, thanks. It's, it has been, it's been great to be able to do that. And I guess I always wanted to be able to pick my own projects. I, I just thought it would I wouldn't be able to work for somebody else and have them tell me what to work on because I want to work on the I want to do what's the highest and best use of my skill set. And things are so you know, this is so important right now. 
this work that we're doing, trying to communicate around climate change, that I just need to be able to go to wherever I think is the most important thing to work on and to do that. And, you know, I had the really the honor of doing things like working on the Arctic Climate Impact Assessment as an, as a, the author, the writer. And I got to spend time with hundreds of scientists, travel all around the Arctic, you know, sit in a lavu with the Sami people in the north of Norway, go up to the North Pole, all kinds of just amazing things. So it's been, it's been good. And now I think to top it all off, I need to see us bend the curve on CO2 emissions while I'm still young enough to enjoy it and appreciate that moment. Yeah, we're, we're bending the curve on so many other things like uh, the so price of solar, the price of storage, the, uh, the e adoption of EVs. But yes, the CO2 is still, is still climbing and scary. But back to climate communication for a second, because you have some really good lines that define who you are. And one is just translating science into English. I, I love that. It was just so out front. And of course, there's lots of other languages, but it was just so basic and making complex issues accessible, I guess, and, that, and just helping to boil it down to, uh, to ways that people can really understand. I think people think of climate change as being such a complicated issue that they can't even begin to understand it. And I always say, you know, it's not really. It's really pretty simple. And I love to just help people understand that this is not rocket science, it's steam engine science. We've known this for 150 years that, you know, certain gases like carbon dioxide and methane trap heat in the atmosphere. And if you increase the concentration of those gases, it's like putting a blanket on the earth and we keep thickening that blanket, it's going to heat up. It's basic physics. Yeah, you, you translate it like that. And then your optimism also, I was going to hit on this at the end, but it seems appropriate now where you said, you know, climate change is not insurmountable. And a lot of people are pessimistic about climate and, and they think all we can do is adapt. But you're saying it's not, in, in, in fact, it empowers us uh, if we recognize that, that we are the cause and then we're, it's a man-made problem and there's man-made solutions. I, I thought that was really well put. It speaks to your optimism. Well, so I wouldn't say that I'm either optimistic or pessimistic because what, what I would say is that I'm hopeful, but I think that hope is an action verb. And... I believe that we can do it, whether we will do it, that I can't say. And so if I believed that we would do it, that would be optimism. I'm hopeful. I know it's possible. I know it's technologically feasible. I also know that it would be good for us economically. It would be good for so many other reasons. You know, we'd send fewer kids to the hospital with asthma. We'd have cleaner, more walkable communities. All the other problems that are caused by the extraction of fossil fuels you know, it's not just the carbon dioxide, you know, look around and see what happens with, you know, with fracking, with oil spills, with the tar sands. It's the impacts of fossil fuel extraction and use are so pervasive, and they're not only causing the climate crisis, they're also contributing to an ecological crisis, where, you know, we're, we're mowing down rainforests, we're fragmenting intact landscapes, we're doing so many things to use fossil fuels and they're not, and they're exhaustible and they're not the cheapest and best source of energy. And there's so many reasons not to do this that it makes me a little crazy, you know, but I also understand that we're dealing with the richest industry in the history of humanity, the, you know, multi-trillion, I don't, can't even count that high uh, industry and, and their disinformation campaign and their owning of politicians and, 
all of that, which is another reason I like to work independently, because I want to be able to tell it like it is. I don't want anybody saying to me, oh, you're not allowed to say that. <laughs> I like to say, you know, the quality of life is just going to improve uh, as we as we shift to a clean energy economy and a, a more holistic community sort of lifestyle. It's even during the pandemic. Uh, so many people are out walking and biking and getting to know their local stores, and their local restaurants. And we've had a lot of this localization, which is so, so healthy. You, you talk about the words that are people are using to communicate and the climate that, that's so important. And you, and you talked about, um, we're talking about regulating our way out of this and restricting and cutting and controlling and conserving and taxing. And, and as you said, that, get, that gets people's hackles up. We've got to spin that towards what I guess uh, innovation and entrepreneurialism and uh, winning in the competition for the global energy race. I find that in particular for people of a certain political persuasion, talking about the competing in the global clean energy race is something that does get them excited. They understand, look, this is the future. And, you know, we have a choice. We can either buy solar panels from China or we can sell solar panels to China. But right now we're buying stuff from China, from Germany, from Denmark, from Japan, from the countries that are out front on climate change and are doing the right thing. And we're not. So we can't let ourselves fall further and further behind. We're stuck on the energy of the past and we need to be looking to the energy of the future. And, you know, I, I want to be a little careful because there are certain government, there are certain things that government can do that can't really be done any other way. There do need to be certain regulations. I like appliance efficiency standards. I like automobile efficiency standards. Um, I like certain environmental protections. And I think everybody does. I think we should have those. Nobody has completely free property rights. You know, you can't build a nuclear plant in your backyard if you want to. And we all accept that. That's part of our society. So I think we're going to need some government regulation. But if you think about the solutions to climate change as purely a regulatory thing, I think you're missing some of the important stuff that can happen on the market side. And, you know, we're seeing that with the car companies moving. The ones that are moving towards electricity are doing better. The ones that are moving towards electric vehicles, that's their stocks going up. And that's where the excitement is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Clearly here in California, you have solar in your house. It sells faster than than a house without the, the the public value has has really shifted. I'm glad you mentioned what you did about regulation. I mean, it's not just. I guess the the when you lead with your communications and you're trying to build commonality with somebody of different sort so different values, it's great talking about free markets and it's great talking about market opportunities and growth in different sectors. But yes, uh, you you beat me to it. Uh, talking about the need for regulation and sort of some very strategic um, government policy that can spur markets and, and transform our society more, more rapidly. I guess if you rely on the free market, we'll get to a crisis before there's a, a solution. That, that's the race that's on, you know? Um, we've, got to, we've got to win this clean energy race before we lose the climate race. And so the, the timing really is critical. And um, yeah, but so smart regulation, like putting a price on carbon, so, you know, the, the market works if the prices are right. Well, right now the prices aren't right. You know, there's the externalities, you know, all of the bad things that fossil fuels do that they don't pay for. We don't pay for in the price of fossil fuels. We pay for them other ways. That can't happen. Those prices have to be, you know, brought in with the social cost of carbon and so forth. And 
the subsidies. We still subsidize the coal, oil, and gas industry, which is ridiculous. People think we subsidize renewables a lot, and we subsidize them some, but nothing compared to what we do for the fossil fuels. So, yeah, there's a lot of things we could do. Desubsidize, you know, say no new fossil fuel infrastructure, um, get a price on carbon, uh, clean energy standards. We've seen those work really well at the state level, the renewable portfolio standards. We should absolutely have a clean energy standard nationally. And that's in the reconciliation bill right now. How it comes out, we'll see. But this is a very important moment for people to get in touch with their leaders and let them know that this is a critical moment for climate legislation. And we want to see them pass the strongest possible budget reconciliation bill that has all of these climate components in it. Your New York Times op-ed that was, what, five, six months ago? Um, less than that. I've actually than- had two in the last two months. One of them is, is here on the wall behind me. It's, it was a full page in the Week in Review. Um, the one before that talked about the Pacific Northwest heat dome and how it was indeed climate change playing out before our eyes. I guess it was the second one where you really talked about the effect of heat waves in different parts of the country and in different parts of the world. And it seemed to me that it was it, it showed, I mean, it was brilliantly written and you had some great partners, obviously, but uh, it, it seemed a little bit like some of the frustration was coming out in you that uh, look, 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 look. <laughs> It it may be the case, although I will say I take, there is no pleasure in I told you so on this. You know, we've, we have been saying this for 30 years, and now it's here. And now we get to see it in real time. But it's even worse than that, because nobody predicted breaking a heat wave by 10 degrees, we usually break them by a 10th of a degree, a half a degree. And the jump that we've seen makes the scientists nervous that we may have crossed some threshold here that we really couldn't even model or understand that this heat wave that we just experienced uh, in the, on the West, there aren't numbers big enough to say how likely, how unlikely it was. It would, it was impossible without human caused climate change. And even with human caused climate change, it was almost impossible. Yeah. It's really, it's horrifying thought that, that there was some sort of a tipping point or some sort of a synergy of evil forces that came together, or coalescing of evil forces that came together. And, and, and the fires are still, I mean, fires are raging. Here, here I am in the West Coast. I mean, I was in New York last week, and they're getting smoke from the West, and huge fire. So do you think people are getting it now? I mean, more and more, are we seeing sort of an uptake in awareness related to climate change? I wish I could say that it was stronger than, I, than what it is. Um, we do see Some people are more concerned, but what persuades people more, what dictates people's views on climate change more than the weather, more than the science, is their political persuasion. And this is really frustrating to me because this should not be a partisan issue. There are no Republican or Democratic thermometers. There is just reality. The world is warming because we're putting these heat trapping gases in the atmosphere We know what to do, and now we just need to do it. And for some reason, this is now the most partisan issue in this country, even more so than abortion, than some of the other things, you know, gun rights. It is so partisan that just knowing how a person votes can tell you generally how they feel about climate change. One thing we are seeing on a more positive note is that younger Republicans understand this. It's the older Republicans who are... Uh, tend to be 
always exceptions, tend to be much less likely to want to accept this. And I think that's solution aversion. And this is when it comes back to the regulation. They don't want the government telling them what kind of car they can drive and what kind of light bulb to use. And so they're averse to how they perceive the solutions. And that's why they're rejecting the science. So I think we that's what I talked about in my TEDx talk, that we really need to think of different ways of talking about this. And you, you mentioned trust and connecting on values. And that's at the heart of good communication. I always teach scientists that. The first thing you want to do, connect on values, find common ground build trust. Climate change is affecting things that we both care about, that we all care about, a better world for our kids, whatever it is. And then focusing on how climate change is affecting that thing. And then also all the other benefits that will come with the changes that we need to make. And then you talked also about the importance of messengers. Talk about messengers and how are we going to get... uh... How are we going to get the messengers uh, on, on the, I guess it's the older Republican side, really? Uh, that's the crux of the issue, to be frank. Yeah, and it is. And a big part of the problem, again, to be frank, is money and politics. You know, the fact that we have, you know, the way our political system works, you need a lot of money to run it, run for office and stay in office. And the fossil fuel industry makes enormous donations to most of those Republican senators that are standing in our way. And at some point we have to just say, we can't let this industry hold our future hostage, you know, in the name of their short-term profits. It just doesn't make any sense. The problem is we've, these are, these are the obstructionists that we still have in, you know, running our government and the Senate and the house, these, and it's, it's a huge frustration, obviously. And they've gone from denial now to just, well, you know, they're not denying the reality. They can't anymore. It's playing out in front of everybody's eyes. But what they do now is say, oh, well, it'll be, we can't fix that. It's too expensive. We can't do without the fossil fuels. And yeah, so it's frustrating because now they're turning their denialism against renewables. And they're saying, oh, the renewables can't do it. Well, Certainly, lots of studies have shown that the renewables can do it and that the price has come down. We don't need an energy miracle. We've already had one. The price of solar coming down 90%, the the price of battery storage falling, all of these things are contributing to an environment in which we can certainly do this if we can get that monkey off our back. So we got to keep giving you lots of vitamins and start cloning (laughs) you and cloning your your message. What What are some of your current projects now? What are you What are you focused on like today? What I'm focused on today is making me a little crazy, but it's really important. And that is all of the planned fossil fuel infrastructure, all of the new planned oil, gas, and coal development. I mean, we are at a moment when we need to say no more, no more fossil fuel development. We have, we're going to reduce by at least, what is it? 6% 6% a year, we're increasing, we're still increasing. And the plans on the drawing board, we're throwing good money after bad. They're gonna be sunk costs. They are never gonna be able to use those pipelines and refineries and all of this stuff. And it's mostly what they call unconventional oil and gas. So it's fracking and tar sands and super destructive environmentally kinds of things going into new frontiers and destroying tropical forests. I mean, there's so 
My current work is looking at all of this new planned fossil fuel infrastructure, much of it in the United States and some of it in other countries, and figuring out how we're going to help people understand this, how we're going to get the message out, the word out. So it's not private. I mean, it's all pub based on public data, but people don't know about it. So we have activists in each place fighting particular projects. So up in Minnesota, they're fighting line three, but they're fighting this one company. And we need to be looking at this as a, you know, holistically as a global picture. We need to be looking at all of those companies and the banks that are financing them. And we need to be taking this on in a much more connected sort of way. So that's what I hope to help figure out a little bit in, in the next couple months is to help figure out how to communicate this through the right channels so that we at least take this first step of stopping fossil fuel development. And I don't know if you've heard about this fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty, but I think that's a great idea. It's like the nuclear non-proliferation treaty. When we see something that is threatening our survival, we have to say no more of this at least stop, right? What the old saying is when you're in a hole, stop digging. We got to stop digging right now, literally. And then we have to you know, work our way out of the hole. But yeah, we're still increasing and we've got to stop. And so like you said, we're building lots of solar and lots of wind, but as long as the fossil fuels are still being produced and we're still using them, right. CO2 is still going up. And sort of picking up on your on your theme of trying to find common language, say, with a, with a capitalist uh, to suggest that those will be stranded assets in a number of years, uh, I think sort of speaks to, speaks to the economists. We, you'd be proud of our little municipal utility here. We serve 200,000 people. I'm on the commission of the utility. But before my time, uh, an environmental coalition was formed because the utility was planning on increasing the size of the power plant. And of course, they're they're getting into a 30, 40 year commitment with natural gas at a time when California is working as fast as possible to decarbonize. So uh, the whole proposal was thrown out. We now are building a virtual power plant, lots of battery storage, lots of very, very cool things, very much along the lines that you're talking. And so I'm, I'm seeing some encouraging things, but I do think that, boy, it's critical that you keep documenting all of this planned infrastructure development that's uh, really moving us in the wrong direction. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there are bright spots and I'm glad you pointed to one because I think one of the most important things we can do is we have to talk about the solutions as much as we talk about the problem. Um, I just see that one of the solutions is we have to stop, st start saying no to fossil fuels. We have to start saying no new natural gas plants because once you build that plant, you're going to want to operate it for what, 50 years or whatever it is. And we can't. So that's it. We've got to do both. And I tweeted that today, right? We don't just need to stop doing, you know, start doing more of the good thing. We have to stop doing the bad thing. And yeah, well, very well put. Think, think that you mentioned some exciting times in your career, but I'm hoping that you can talk about three or four of the most exciting things that happened in your world of climate communications. You can kind of brag if you want, you deserve to, but, but I mean, you've had some, you've had, I mean, you, you're doing a lot of really hard work but you've had some really uh, terrific senses of accomplishment, I'm sure. What, what are some of those? I have to say that probably the biggest single thing is 
the the people that I get to work with. Um, you know, I often say this is a really, really tough battle, but the company in the trenches is really good. And I have gotten to meet and work with some of the world's top scientists, and we've become really close friends. And so I have this, feel like I have this cadre of genius level colleagues that are doing the most important work in every facet of understanding climate science and the solutions. And that to me has been the greatest gift. And the fact that I've actually helped some of them to become more effective communicators is to me a great sense of accomplishment. There were some of these people that when they came in, they were not the greatest communicators, but they wanted to do it, right? They were smart, they cared about it, and I worked with them. And you know, sometimes in small groups, we did lots of workshops for scientists to get them to be more effective communicators, lots of role-playing. And then a lot of this one-on-one -on -one stuff, somebody was gonna go do congressional testimony. We'd get on Zoom together and we'd practice. And I'd be the jerk senator asking him questions and, giving him, and then giving him feedback and letting him try again. And so I really helped a lot of the really great scientist communicators become better. And I think that's been really important. So I guess I would say those, those to me are the, feel like the most important accomplishments. How do we amplify your, your voice? I know that there's people like Tony Lazarowitz up at Yale, the climate communications group. Are there, are there, is there a, a network of people like you that are helping each other and recharging each other's sort of creative energies here? Well, interesting about Tony, Tony Lazarowitz and I actually worked together 30 years ago at the Aspen Global Change Institute. And he was just out of college then, and he came to be a ski bum or something in Aspen and ended up working there. And we got to know each other and we stayed in touch over the years. He and his colleague, Ed Maybach at George Mason are two of my close colleagues and friends. And we do have other people that work in our arena that, that talk and support each other. But there aren't very many people who do what I do. So Tony and Ed are both academics. They study and research communication. They study public opinion. Um, they survey the American public twice a year for something they call climate change in the American mind. And they've come up with a way of thinking about how Americans are about climate change. They call it global warming six Americas. You've probably seen this. They ranged from, range from those who are most alarmed to those who are most dismissive and the groups in between. And they track the changes. There are very few people who do the sort of in the trenches communication work that I do, although there are more now and there are some new organizations that do this. And, you know, one of the projects I work on is called Climate Matters in the Newsroom. And we try to provide information and support for journalists, weathercasters, you know, anyone who's out there communicating to the public about climate change, giving them good localized information and data that they can use to help tell these stories. So that's been, um, that's also kind of a collegial building a community of practice around trying to improve the way we communicate about this. It sounds like there's still a, you would say that there's a, a much broader need for people that are doing what you're doing or for just this embodiment of your, your way of, of addressing the communications on this, on this critical issue that we still, we, we really need to break through this really adversarial posture, which we've seen with even the pandemic. I mean, it's just, it's just, we're so divided on these issues that 
and, and that we miss those common goals. I mean, nobody could ever, like you've said, and we've all said, nobody ever wants to leave a planet for our kids that's polluted. I mean, what, what could be more irresponsible than that? Right. To, to leave our kids with a problem that they cannot solve. It would be, that is what we would be doing. And that to me is something that none of us wants to do, right? So sometimes I look into the psychology of these things. And one of the things I've read is that conservatives tend to be nostalgic for the way things were. They like, they want to be able to leave their kids the same thing they had, the same benefits that they had. Whereas progressive tend to be more as the word would imply, thinking about progress, thinking about a different future, a better future. So sometimes when I'm talking to a conservative, I'll say, you know, if they're if they like to fish, you want you want your son to be able to fly fish on that same river as you did, but the cold water is not cold enough to support those trout anymore. And you know, you want your kids to be able to have the same benefits to ski, to snowmobile, to ice fish, whatever it is. Those things are going away. And so this is a way to conserve and preserve the things that you love and value. And, you know, you asked about messengers, and I do feel like that's a really important part of this. What I think we need is not necessarily more people who do what I do, but a broader range of messengers that can reach their constituents. So whether it's religious leaders, you know, the ministers and so forth, business leaders that people look to as for leadership, um, economists, you know, other kinds of, of professionals that people look to and trust. I think that that would help because I'm not the right messenger for a lot of people, but we have to find those messengers. And those are the people who have to be out there telling their stories. Yeah. I, I just, um, Reminded of uh, Emma, the uh, environmental media associates out here in Los Angeles that's been trying to take the message through all the, the, the actors. And, and that's, I think, very effective. I just heard a couple days ago about Musicians Declare Emergency, which is a UK initiative that's now coming to the United States and they're looking for, for that. I mean, it's, it's uh, yeah, I think it's finding sports stars, actors, musicians, uh, everybody that people respects and, and uh, relates to. Because yeah. if you're not CNN or Fox, you become just sort of sucked into this, uh, into this ugly debate, you know, this polarity that doesn't feel good for anybody. Right. And, you know, while we can criticize our sort of celebrity obsessed culture, I think we have to use what works. And if, if people are drawn to celebrities and listen to what they say, okay, let's, <laughs> let's put that to good use, right? When I hear some of the things Arnold Schwarzenegger comes out with on climate change, I think he's great. He comes out with things that people on, on all sides can agree with. Yeah, he, he was really exceptional in the, in the environment. I think thanks to Maria Shriver. How do you keep the faith uh, in all of this? You, you, keep, you, know, you keep charging forward and working hard, I know. How do you keep the faith? Some days it's hard. I have to be honest about that. Um, I'm, I'm motivated by the youth movement, the fact that these young people really are speaking out now and saying, look, this is our future and really calling out the inaction that they see. Um, I think that what we're seeing in the clean energy arena is really inspiring. I mean, we, this is happening in a way that's really better and faster than any of us could have imagined or predicted. And so the fact that we know we can do it and it can be 
economically uh, effective. That, that gives me hope. And I guess for me, it's just taking action, right? The, I, have to, I have to keep acting and that makes me feel more hopeful. When I start to feel down, I say, okay, what can I do today to make a difference? Let me do that. Let me do everything I can do because the world has to do as much as we can, as fast as we can on this. It's not like there's one number below which we're safe and above which we're screwed. So at this point, it's not a matter of screwed or not screwed, it's how screwed. And that's what we get to choose, right? Are we gonna have a little more of this problem or are we gonna have a lot more and have a global catastrophe? So by the same token, I have to do as much as I can, as fast as I can to help get us in that, you know, to move in that direction. It may be important for people like our listeners to, to think about what things can they do? You know, I'm a big proponent of solar power and I drive an electric vehicle and a super efficient house. And some people still have stocks and bonds that are wrapped up with the oil, the oil and gas industry. It might be time to divest of that. It might be time to might be really time to, to make some, to look at our own lives and to make some, some significant steps. I, I agree with you. I find that, that the best thing, the best way for me to keep the, the faith and to keep the spirits high is just to, is just to work and to, and to feel like I'm making a contribution as opposed to sitting back and letting it ride over us like a wave. What are you doing for, your, for balance in your, in your life? Are you... Uh, Doing yoga or what's your what's your thing these days? I do yoga and Pilates. I do exercise with um, a group of women that um, I've exercised with before the pandemic. Now we just do it on Zoom like everything else. And um, so I do get a lot of exercise. I walk a lot. I got a pandemic puppy from uh, Mountain Pet Rescue and she's adorable and walk her, uh, spend a lot of time walking and playing with her. and. Um, yeah, I mean, life is good. I have like an urban homestead here, got a huge vegetable garden, and it's producing so much right now that I'm just giving it away to people walking by because we just have more tomatoes than we know what to do with. And so, you know, those kinds of things, enjoying our home and our place is, is really good and important for me. Good for you. So happy to hear all this. And uh, again, I really applaud what you've got, what you've done, what you're going to do, keep it going. But I really applaud what you've done. I think it's, it's just absolutely essential that we, we keep working on communicating with those that have different viewpoints. <laughs> I think looking, we do have to do that. And we also, I think we have to recognize that this problem is too big to solve individually with voluntary action. So while all the things you mentioned are important, and I do them. I eat a plant-based diet. I put my money where my mouth is. Not only have I divested from all the bad stuff, I've invested in the good stuff. And, you know, so there's lots of things we can do as individuals, but we should not forget that this is really a collective action problem and that the fossil fuel industry would like us to take individual responsibility and talk about our own carbon footprint and forget about theirs. But this is a problem of that industry and what they're imposing on this society for their profits. So they have succeeded in you know, internalizing the profits and externalizing the costs to society. So they've socialized the costs and that has got to stop. And so I always want people to remember that some of the important things they can do have nothing to do with their individual lifestyle and have more to do with 
what companies they support, what candidates they support, uh, getting involved in local issues, municipal issues, making sure their utilities and their cities are doing the right thing on climate. There's so much that individuals can do to help the collective action, the systemic change that we really need to turn this around. Well put, super well put. Melissa, thanks so much, Sue. Thanks, Ted. This has been really fun. It's great to see you again after all these years and uh, glad we got to talk. Me too. Have a good afternoon. Thanks. That's it. Thanks for tuning in to this edition of The Net Positive. We'll see you next time.